Almighty God and Father, you have promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So, the sermon text is on the back of your bulletin, and it's from Mark chapter 9, verse 14. So, let's take kind of a quick overview of it before we get specifically to the theme for today. Verse 14, and when they, and they refer to Jesus and the three disciples of the inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the other disciples, now, Jesus and these three of the inner circle are coming down from the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus has been revealed to the inner circle as God himself. All right, so they're coming down. They're rejoining now the other nine. They saw a great crowd around them, meaning the nine, and the scribes arguing with them. Now, we're not told what they're arguing about. But some commentators speculate, and I think it's, it's okay to do this. We can speculate. You don't have to believe this. But they very well could be arguing about the failure of the disciples to cast the demon out to the effect that if you're not able to cast this demon out, your ministry must not be from God, and your master must not be from God. Could be the dispute. We don't know for certain. Verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now why are they greatly amazed? Again, we're not told. But commentators speculate that since the argument may well have been about the legitimacy of Jesus and his ministry through the disciples, it could be that here, speak of the angel, he arrives at the opportune moment. He's here. Okay, so they rush to him. And verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, that's an interesting question because he's God, right? He should know. Why does he have to ask? And he does the same thing in verse 21 where he asked the father of the demon-possessed boy, how long has he been in this condition? Why does he ask the question? Again, we're not told, but it may be a part of, of what we call his state of humiliation. That is, the state of humiliation is that Jesus does not always or fully use his divine powers. Now, we see examples in the gospel where he knows what people are thinking and he calls them out on it, all right? But, but he, this may be an example where he just sets that aside. And kind of like Samantha in the old TV series, Bewitched, you know, she's not supposed to use her witchy powers, right? Jesus lays these things aside in a very serious way because this ultimately is what enables him to go to the cross, to lay down his life, even though he's God, yet he can die because he's the God-man, 
and he lays aside his divine prerogatives, his privileges, his powers, in order to do that for our salvation. He may be doing that here in the same way. Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So you know the rest of the narrative here. He cast out the demon, and then at the very end of the gospel lesson, the disciples, when they're alone with him, they ask for an explanation. Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus says, this kind can be driven out by nothing but prayer. And so we wonder, well, what does he mean by that? What's the point? Well, remember, three chapters before, in Mark 6, Jesus gave authority to the disciples. He gave authority over unclean spirits. But now, in chapter 9, they may, and I just underline may, they may begin to assume that this power is theirs, okay? Kind of like, we've got this, we can do this, all right? Almost as if they're acting independently of God. It's now their power to do with as they wish. That could be the problem, we don't know, but it's just speculation, all right? And that's why Jesus says, I think that's why he says, this kind can be driven out only by prayer. Because after all, what is prayer? Prayer is an admission of dependence upon God. When you pray, you are saying, in effect, God, I can't do this. You have to do it if it's going to be done at all. Only you can. The disciples apparently believed that the power to cast out demons was now coming directly from them rather than God himself. In other words, they were seeing themselves as the objects of faith and confidence rather than the faith and confidence residing in God. And how common is that? I mean, does that sound familiar? Uh, we tend to believe in ourselves more than we trust in others, including God, at times. Now, verse 19, let's focus on that. Verse 19, and Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Roman numeral one in your outline, unbelief is painful to Jesus. It is painful to Jesus. And who's guilty of the unbelief here? I think first and foremost, it's the disciples. But it's also the scribes, those who refuse to look at the evidence that's staring them in the face. They don't want to believe in Jesus. And even the disciples struggle with this faith issue. But unbelief is obviously, it's painful to Jesus. Now it's not physically painful, but it is emotionally painful just as it is physically painful for our Lord to bear our punishment at the cross, it is emotionally painful for him to bear 
the sin of our unbelief. For example, how many of us have family members, close friends, who do not believe? Many of us do. And how does that feel? Well, I'll tell you how it feels. It hurts. You hurt for them. They resist the evidence. It's as if they're blind to it. They cannot see. We feel pity for them. And it hurts Jesus to see these men whom he's taught, whom he's trained. These men, they're supposed to take over for him. Okay? And they just don't get it. We see that every week. Every week. They just don't get it. But Jesus does not give up on them. He bears with them, doesn't he? He bears with them in their unbelief, in their resistance. He doesn't give up. And, and nor do we give up on family members and friends who don't believe, who resist Christ today. We don't give up on them. We bear with them, even though their unbelief hurts us emotionally. It hurts. Roman numeral two, unbelief is contagious. It's contagious. You see, the disciples are not able to cast out the demon. They're representatives of Jesus. And so the Father now, because of the disciples' unbelief, his faith is in crisis, you see. He's having trouble believing. He's believing, but it's not easy. And my friends, it's, it's no different with you and me. When we stumble, when we turn away from the Lord and go our own direction, which is what sin is all about, it can cause a crisis of faith in those around us. It can weaken their faith. It can undermine their trust in the Lord. When we stumble and fall, it's very real. It happens. Unbelief is contagious, but so is faith. And we see Jesus in the gospel lesson for today overflowing with faith. All things are possible to the one who believes, and the Father takes heart. He takes heart. Point A. All of us struggle with unbelief. We all do. If anyone tells you they don't, they're lying. Okay? All of us struggle with unbelief. And there are many challenges to faith. Number one, our own unrealistic expectations of God. That is to say, we project onto God our own ideas of how God must behave. You know, uh, oh God, my God would never allow me to hurt or to suffer pain or, or great disappointment. You see, God's not like that. Well, I got news for you. God himself suffers. God himself experiences pain. He came in the flesh to do just that. And those who follow him bear a cross in this world. And it's painful. It happens. It's a fallen world, gang. Things don't work right. Number two, scientism. Now, we're not talking about science here, but scientism. Scientism is a challenge to faith because scientism 
considers only naturalistic explanations for the origin of life and the universe, and it purposely refuses to consider any supernatural explanations for the origin of life. It just rules them out, you see. True science, however, follows the evidence wherever it leads, even if it leads you to supernatural explanations of the origin of life. And true science supports the Bible. It, it, it really does. Uh, for example, uh, prior to 1965, uh, scientists, uh, by and large, believed that the universe was eternal. It was always here. It always will be here, right? They didn't want to think about a beginning because a beginning implies a beginner, right? Uh, some author of life. They didn't want to go there. But in 1965, the evidence was coming in. It was irresistible. And kicking and screaming, the scientific community came to the conclusion that the world had a beginning. The universe began. Now, we may not agree on exactly how it began, but at least they're closer to us than they were before. True science supports the Bible. Everything comes from something. You ever notice that? There's nothing in the world that can account for its own origin. It doesn't come into being by itself. Everything that we observe empirically now, all the evidence says that everything comes from something else. There's always a first cause. There's always a cause for what there is. But scientism denies all that. Scientism says it doesn't matter what happens in the world. It doesn't matter what we see. The universe must have come from nothing on its own. It just came from nothing by itself. Now, how does that work? It doesn't, you see. They purposely rule out the possibility of a supernatural explanation. They won't go there for anything. Number three, the sexual revolution is a challenge to faith. And, and the se sexual revolution, you can define it in many ways, but here's how I define it. It is an attempt to reconfigure the family. It's been going on for years. No-fault divorce, abortion, gay marriage, transgenderism. Now, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, are victims of the sexual revolution. But most of all, children. Children are the primary victims. How do we know that? It's very clear. All of the research, all of the research leads to one conclusion that children do best in an intact nuclear family where the biological father and the biological mother are present together. Now, children can survive in many different environments. We know that. But they do best in the intact nuclear family. Now, we understand that many times that's just not possible. It's not possible for that nuclear family to always stay intact. And so we thank God for adoption. We thank God for foster families. But it does not follow that it is in the child's best interest to redefine marriage and to reconfigure the family. It's, it's not in his or her best interest. Number four, the problem of evil is a challenge. It's a challenge, by the way, for every belief system, but including Christianity. And yet, 
the entire Bible is the revelation of how God deals with evil in a loving and forgiving way. Now, contrast that with, for example, Eastern religions. Eastern religions teach that evil is an illusion. It's not real. It doesn't really exist. It's just your faulty perception of things. That's the problem. Oh, really? Does that work? Atheism cannot deal with evil because if there's no God, what right do you have to call anything right or wrong, you see? Uh, because there's no transcendent objective standard of what is good or what is evil. It's just your opinion versus my opinion. It just comes down to that. For example, nature teaches us that the strong eat the weak, right? Well, and you can argue that's, that's a good thing. It cleans up the environment, you see? And, and it weeds out all the weaklings from the gene pool. Now, that was Hitler's philosophy. But if there's no God, if there's no transcendent standard of right and wrong, how can anyone blame Hitler? He's just following nature, or his understanding of nature versus your understanding of nature, and who's to say which is right? My friends, the Bible takes a completely different tact. The Bible understands that murder is evil. It is wrong. It is contrary to the will of God. And the Bible teaches that evil doesn't exist independent of you or me. It exists in us. Jesus said, out of the heart comes evil speech, murder, adultery, theft, slander, envy, and so on. Evil exists in us. And if God loves us and the cross proves it, then he deals with evil not by destroying us, but by redeeming us and making us new in Christ. Letter B, the struggle, the struggle with unbelief is actually evidence of faith. And the Father's cry, help my unbelief, that is a cry of faith as well. That Father was a man of faith, and like you and me, he's in this struggle. There is a town in northern Vermont. It's, it's on the U.S.-Canadian border. It's called Derby Line, Vermont. And if you go to Derby Line, Vermont, you, you can go into the library. And the library sits on the international border, and there's actually a line going through the reading room in the library. You can go in the library, and you can go in the reading room and stand with one foot in Canada and the other foot in the United States. You can stand in two countries at once. And my friends, you and I are in the same situation, spiritually speaking. We live in the world, this world, this fallen world, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our loyalty is in heaven. And that automatically sets up a conflict. It sets up a struggle for faith between what the world expects of us on the one hand and what God expects of us on the other. But it all comes down to this. The world did not create you. The world did not die for you. Jesus did. We live by faith, but by a faith that is tested, 
again and again. And that's why we cry out with the man in our gospel lesson, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Strengthen my faith through daily doses of your word. Strengthen my, build up my faith. Build up my faith every Lord's day through the promise of forgiveness and the Holy Sacrament. This is how the Lord helps our unbelief. By opening our ears every day to his promises, that's what builds faith. Roman numeral three, faith overrules unbelief. It overrules unbelief. And faith has supreme value in the eyes of God because of its object. Because of its object. Now, it's a good question. Why is faith so valuable? Why does it really matter? It's, it's so ordinary. Faith is something we experience every day. We live by it every day. You're here at 8 a.m. because you believe that someone will be here to lead worship at 8 a.m. Otherwise, you wouldn't come, you see. We live by faith every day. It's so common. It's so mundane. Why is it so special? And why does God think so much of faith that he overlooks our sin and all of our unbelief simply because of faith? Why? Well, my friends, faith is precious because of its object. And its object is Jesus. Even a small smidgen of faith in Jesus matters to God because it's faith in Jesus and not something or someone else. Even small faith in Jesus cancels out, it overrules all sins you've committed, all the unbelief you're guilty of because its object is Christ. The one who died for you, the one whom the Father sent for you. Jesus is so precious to God, Jesus is, that even the smallest amount of faith in him matters more to God than all of your sin, all of your iniquity, all of your unbelief. And that makes Jesus precious to us. And Jesus makes you precious to God. In Jesus' name. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.